Pope Benedict XVI says it's impossible to understand the Second Vatican Council without studying the teaching of Venerable Pope Pius XII. Pius's writings are the second most cited authoritative source in the Council documents. Who was Pope Pius XII? What did he contribute to our Church? Join us as we rediscover the hidden legacy of Pope Pius XII with renowned Catholic theologian Dr. Scott Hahn. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Thank you for joining us on Franciscan University Presents. Uh, my name is Michael Hernan, your host here uh, for Franciscan University Presents. Today we'll be discussing the hidden legacy of Pope Pius XII. I'm joined here in our studios uh, at Franciscan University with uh, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and our guest panelist, Dr. Michael Cirilla, Professor of Theology here as well at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and our special guest, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, who is no stranger to uh, Presents or EWTN viewers. Uh, Dr. Hahn holds a uh, PhD in Biblical Theology from the Marquette University, is a professor of theology and scripture here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, uh, where he holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization. Uh, if we went on to list your books, we'd be here for a long time, wouldn't have a show uh, to, to talk about. But some of the more recent uh, uh, books include Signs of Life, The Kingdom of God as a Liturgical Empire, and his newest work, uh, Politicizing the Bible with Benjamin Weicker. Uh, today we're looking for your expertise on, on Venerable Pope Pius Twelfth and his legacy for the Church. Um, so why are we having a show on this, Scott? Who, who is Pope Pius Twelfth? Well, first of all, we're doing it because Pope Benedict, on December 19th, 2009, declared John Paul to be, of course, blessed, beatification. Yes. But on the same day, Pius XII was declared to be venerable, the servant of God, on account mm -hmm. of his heroic virtue. And so a lot of people kind of asked themselves, you know, who exactly was Pius XII? And the quick answer was he was the Pope, the successor of <laughs> Peter, during some of the most troubled years of the Catholic Church in the 20th century. From March 1939, right before World War I, World War II began, to October 9, 1958, he reigned as the Supreme Pontiff over some really difficult times. But in that time, he not only defined the dogma of Mary's bodily assumption in 1950, he also wrote 40 encyclicals in 19 years, which is more than all of his other you know, <laughs> colleagues yeah. Yeah, combined in that century. And so when we look at what he wrote, we see not only a great quantity of encyclicals, we see am amazing quality in those as well. And so a, a, a close look at Pius XII also reveals something of great significance that in the deliberations of Vatican II, he is the most frequently cited in all of the oral and written presentations over 2,000 times. But even more, in the documents themselves, 
as Pope Benedict recently pointed out, you know, except for sacred scripture, he is cited more frequently than any other authority. Over 200 times he ends up in the footnotes. These documents really had a formative role in preparing the church for the teachings that we find in the 16 documents of Vatican II. When we were talking, this is a profound thing that I think very few people even realize today. Very few Catholics understand right. the legacy that he has, the impact he had. And I think, it, for me, the first thing when you say Pope Pius XII is Hitler's Pope, that book, that the infamous book that laid a lot of uh, misgivings, which probably hid a lot of this legacy. That's right. In 1963, uh, a playwright, so-called, named Rolf Hochhuth came out with a, a play entitled The Deputy. And it was fictional, and yet it was purportedly historical, which was really a slanderous piece that you know, basically accused Pius XII of being entirely complicit with Hitler in the final solution and anti-Semitism and all of the rest. Uh, and so for years now, the effect of that play which was translated into over 20 languages and performed around the world, it's been as pernicious as it has been per pervasive. Yes. And it's led to John, John Cornwall's you know, book, uh, Hitler's Pope, and a number of others too. Uh, more recently, a number of refutations have come out that have really buried this black legend, right. as it's rightly called. Most interestingly, I think that uh, Jan Pachepa, who is the highest ranking Soviet defector who was in involved in Eastern European uh, espionage, he came out uh, and wrote a book, Red Horizons, in which he divulged the, the conspiracy that was launched back in 1960 by Khrushchev after Cardinal Menzenti had exposed the Soviets in Hungary back in the 50s with all these forged documents that were used in his trial to convict him of espionage, Menzenti escaped, used these documents. Khrushchev said, wait a minute, next time we're not going to make that mistake. Dead men can't defend themselves. So let's go after Pius XII. Yeah. Let's forge these documents and let's find a way to leak this for the sake of disinformation. And in the first three years of the 1960s, all of this was going on while Hawkhuth, who didn't even graduate from high school, <laughs> publishes this play, The Deputy, that becomes one of the, the best-selling books and plays of the 20th century, and it's pure deception. Yeah. And why did the communists want to go after Pius XII? Well, because yeah. he hammered him. Yeah, he went, after, he went after the Soviets, the communists. He undermined right. it from the very beginning. Right. He, he was needed very vocal. to discredit him. This is one of the most significant features of Pius XII. I mean, from 1901 until he became Pope in 1939, he had served under Leo XIII, under uh, Pius X, under Benedict XV, under Pius XI. The, the last 10 years before he became Pope, he was the Secretary of State. This is the time of the rise of communism, fascism, Nazism. And he led the charge, not only in terms of diplomacy, but he was an intellectual, not an academic in the sense of some esoteric scholarship, but he was an intellectual who carved out some of the most profound and perceptive writings of the church hmm. during that time, as well as the concordats that enabled the well, church well, that's to survive. His, doc his doctoral dissertation was on writing and composing concordats. That's right. Yeah. Treaties with yeah. these secular states. Which does not entail approving of the evil of those states, but no. rather carving out a space for the church to survive and evangelize for another day or two. Right. No, Plus, even though these concordats right. were not and recognized. Let's not leave out states. the record of his holiness, a man yes. of pronounced no doubt. Yeah. Right. sanctity as right. the church itself now recognizes. It, it, it seems to me that, that a number of the victims of, of Nazi oppression 
owe their survival right. uh, to Pius XII. And, and that alone helps to vindicate uh, 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 the Pope from that infamous charge, that black legend, which I think has rightly been uh, interred. And that fact is in the historical record. Right. New York Times, yep. the head of Jewish synagogues, right. Albert Einstein, yeah. etc. It's all in the yeah. historical record. Yeah. yeah, Ronald Richlap has written a number of articles and books in defense of Pius XII. And I mean, this guy, is, a, is a, a lawyer, he is a professor of law, and he is a great historian. And he wrote a book called Righteous Gentiles, How Pius XII and the Catholic Church Saved a Half a Million Jews. Yeah, you know, and powerful. It is powerful. I mean, convents and monasteries right. were filled with right. Jewish refugees. Yeah. It was sort of carte blanche, anybody who comes to these institutions must be given refuge. Under the Safe direction haven. of Pius XII. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. this is, this is the, the, the black legend that really has been re rebutted, uh, but it also has left a, a scar uh, that, that we've missed out as a church on some of this great legacy of Pope Pius XII. Right. So, I mean, you know, talk to me, because we talked about the, the heroic virtue uh, that, that uh, Pope Benedict XVI said was the reason to bring forward his uh, works. He's, he's written 40 different encyclicals. He's done so much. I mean, so, and this is all in the context of him having been the Secretary of State on, in the Vatican and in so many different roles. How did that help form him? Uh, how did those different times help form some of the, the insights that he brought in his encyclicals and other works? Yeah, I mean, as the papal legate, to Munich and then to Berlin in the yeah. 20s yeah. at the time of the foment that led yeah. to Yeah, talk about the cockpit of history. Yeah. Yeah. He was right yeah. there. What a, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then as Secretary of State from 1929 until 1939, he was flying all around in direct contact, but even more, he was prayerfully studying mm -hmm. these, these evil institutions so that he could address them, which he does as soon as he becomes the Pope in 1939. His very first encyclical targets the racism and the, the, the sort of ethnic idolatry that underlies Nazism. You know, you gotta give Khrushchev some credit because, I mean, you're known by your enemies. And uh, the Soviets understood that if there is one man we need to target, it's Pius XII, and they had to wait until after right. he was dead to do yeah. so, yeah. precisely because he was so articulate and so self-possessed. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, during World War II, not only did he help oversee these sorts of things behind the scenes, he himself prayed and fasted. He stood six feet, one inch, but he was around 118 pounds at the right. end of second, yeah. the Second World War because of his fasting. Yeah. Because he would not eat the provisions, you know. He, right. Right. There are so many stories that come from reliable sources yeah. about his heroic virtue. The church does not act in any rash way when it declares this man to be venerable. It's amazing to hear just some of those accounts of, of, yeah. of people inside the Vatican talking about the austerity of even his own life in recognition of so many that were being persecuted, that were under attack for their faith or just for being alive, being a Jew, being whoever. Right. Uh, there was a lot of prayer, a lot of uh, uh, divine spiritual rigor in his life. You know, two, two things that I heard in my research I found, uh, one was that Pius XI was a little concerned when uh, Pius XII's health took a bad turn because he was prayerfully hoping that this man would be his successor. Right. And yeah. so he said, you better take care of yourself. Another thing yeah. that I also found that I think is a reliable testimony is that by 1948, Pius XII was already contemplating an ecumenical council 
because Vatican I had ended rather abruptly with an invasion in 1870, it hadn't gotten to the church, and so five preparatory commissions were actually convened by yeah. Pius XII yeah. in 1948, but then he soon realized that in the aftermath of the Second World War, it just wasn't timely. Right. Yeah, that really helps us, I think, disabuse uh, ourselves of the mythology that Vatican II was, was, was a, a sudden sunburst uh, of, of John, uh, good Pope John on a sunny October afternoon when he received this shaft of light and announced uh, the impending council, when in fact none of this would have been possible but for the, the, the pioneering steps that a man like Pius had taken to, you know, to, to make the ground fertile and to cultivate I think your point, Regis, is probably the most important point we can make, that when we read Vatican II and when we study the church in the aftermath of Vatican II, is it a hermeneutic of rupture and discontinuity? That's the question that Pope Benedict asked. No, of course not. It's the hermeneutic of reform and continuity. Well, Pius XII is tangible proof, sort of exhibit A. The fact that he cited more than any other source except for sacred scripture. Yep. The fact that good Pope John XXIII, Ron Colley, was appointed by right. Pius XII. The fact that he was put in Istanbul as the papal legate in one of the most troubled spots. I mean, Ron Colley and Pacelli were close, right. uh, Pius XII and uh, John XXIII. So, you know, when you look at Vatican II, you recognize, and I'm sure we'll get into this later in the show, that the encyclicals that Pius XII wrote two or three of them in particular, are what make it possible for the documents of Vatican II to really emerge with such clarity and force. There are 16 documents that were promulgated during the Second Vatican Council, but not all the documents are created equal. There are three of them that have a magisterial weight that is unique. The Sacred, Cong- the, the sacred Constitution on the Divine Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, was the first document. But there were two other constitutions, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum, and the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. There's a pastoral constitution, Gaudium et Spes, would come in fourth place, but it's a pastoral constitution, right. much more of a timepiece. But these three constitutions are in direct continuity with three of the most important encyclicals that Pius XII wrote. And it's the key to really reading them in terms of continuity. It isn't revolution. It isn't even evolution. It's a kind of organic growth and maturity that the church experiences then exhibits. And frankly, a completion of Vatican I. That's the church exactly was, right. was acutely conscientious of the fact that yeah. Vatican I not only was abruptly halted at bayonet point, but also never was officially closed. Right. 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 And so subsequent popes going through the upheavals historically in Europe and the Mediterranean basin couldn't finish the job but prepared the way, Pius XII most proximately and arguably right. most profoundly. If, if you yeah. think That's of uh, the 20th century as the yeah. age of the church, this dawning realization, this this historical consciousness of awareness of who we are as church, you've got to concede that it was Pius XII who presides over most of that that period of ferment uh, and renewal and and reform. Uh, He's the guiding light. Uh, And and that's an astonishingly seminal uh, fact. You know, and you also concede that he was using the radio before anybody yes. else. Yes. The Christmas right. broadcasts that were heard all around the world. 
and even TV, he started to use that right. as well. He, he, he wrote encyclicals on sacred music. He was speaking about bioethics before anybody else, you know. His, his material is still being cited today because it was a breakthrough series of insights. So we have a, a pope who has been misjudged by some in the world uh, with this black legend, but who is a man of great faith, a, a great piety, uh, who truly is, is both prolific, both in writing, in communicating, whether radio, TV, getting out there, but is also, as a preconciliar pope, was probably the one who most set up Second Vatican Council. It is the most cited source after scripture. I mean, that's a profound thing. That's, yeah. that's something. That's and and let's not forget a man of singular courage yeah. who faced down the twin evils of the 20th century, the Nazi and, and the Stalinist uh, terrors. Yes. You know, this is really important because people misperceive him still. The majority of people think of him as anti-Semitic. Right. Recently, Oxford hosted a debate. Ronald Richlap did a great job of defending Pius XII. The poll that was taken in the beginning was three to one against Pius XII. Is that right? After yeah. Richlap, who had a limited amount of time, presented all the evidence, it shifted to two to one. Wow. You know, it was, it was a, a, a large number, but just the fact of that ratio shows us right. that the vast majority of people still misrepresent, misunderstand Pius XII. So uh, in our next segment, uh, we, let's look at what are some of the contributions, his encyclical, some of the, the depth of his writing. Thanks for watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. I'm Dan McNally. I'm a theology major here at Franciscan University. I love studying theology. It's my passion. But, I mean, I love learning, too. You walk out of the classrooms, you want to know more. You don't want the lecture to end. So, I mean, that's the really great thing about being a part of a student body is you can continue to discuss outside. It's not just studying to, to make a grade. It's, it's learning to, you know, improve yourself. And not just through your own personal prayer or your own personal study, but through community, because that's what we're made for. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. tuning in to Franciscan University Presents. Today we're discussing the hidden legacy of Pope Pius XII with our special guest, Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, Scott, we, we touched on this in the first segment, um, but uh, what influence did Pope Pius XII have on the Second Vatican Council? Well, he was Pope, again, for nearly 20 years leading up to the Second Vatican Council, and he promulgated 40 encyclicals, which is a record, you know. But again, as I said, it wasn't just quantity, it was quality. Three of them really stand out because of their formative influence in the shaping of the church's thought when it comes to uh, Vatican II. Uh, it was in June of 1943 that uh, Pope Pius XII, in the middle of the Second World War, published this encyclical, uh, Mediator Dei, which focused, uh, I'm sorry, it was uh, Mystici Corporis, yeah, Mystici Corporis, on the mystical body of Christ. And he gave us, which was, you know, what was really the greatest theological and doctrinal synthesis of the church as the mystical body of Christ, drawing especially from Scripture and the Fathers, St. Paul especially, mm -hmm. who is the only New Testament writer to describe the church as the, the body of Christ. It was a beautiful vision that sort of advanced the understanding of the church from the, the hierarchical institution vision of the perfect society, which I, you know, it still embraces that, but it deepens it by showing the supernatural mystery. 
And uh, it, it shows that the body of Christ is precisely what makes the church the family of God that transcends nationality and ethnicity from Germany and Italy and beyond. You know, it encompasses this worldwide and truly divine family solidarity. Then later on that year, in September of 1943, he published my favorite encyclical of his, Divino Afflante Spiritu, which is on sacred scripture. Why am I not surprised? Yeah. <laughs> and it is a masterpiece. It's, the, it's written in the 50th anniversary of Providentissimus Deus. Fifty years earlier, Leo XIII had written the very first of the modern encyclicals on the Bible. And Divino just picks up where Leo left off and takes us to a whole new level. And then in, in 1947, in November of that year, he came out with Mediator Dei, which was on the renewal of the liturgy. And so you have the, uh, the church, you have the Bible, and then you have the liturgy. And when you look at the three most important documents of Vatican II, you recognize that one is on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and it draws extensively from Mediator Dei. Likewise, Dei Verbum, which is on divine revelation, draws extensively from Divino Afflante Spiritu. And likewise, the one on the church, Lumen Gentium, draws extensively from Mystici Corporis, on the mystical body of Christ. And it's not just, you know, citing it a bunch of times. It is this profound continuity in terms of its subject matter, in terms of its emphases, and in terms of the vision that the Holy Spirit inspired the church through Pius XII and others to gain. And these facts refute another legend. And the <laughs> legend is that Vatican II was a radical novum, a supernova, That's something right. super yeah. new, right. a nova. unprecedented, yeah. and a rupturous break from everything that preceded. The very first public allocution Pius XII gave when he ascended the throne was to the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences, okay? Yes. He was, in these encyclicals you mentioned in particular, Scott, he is very uh, acutely and, uh, aware of and succeeds in not only capturing the essence of the truths of the church, scripture, and the liturgy, but applies them to the modern contemporary right. milieu. It's not with Vatican II alone that we begin to open up to engage the modern world. It happened well, well before, and Pius XII is an exemplary person yeah. to do that. W one thing that strikes me uh, about Pius is uh, the hope that must have animated uh, his life and his vision of the church and the world. When you think of the mystical body of Christ, mm. that was 1943, uh, not a propitious time to be meditating upon some abstract truth about uh, the church. The world is going up in flames, engulfed by the flames of deceit, injustice, violence, hatred. And here is this lonely, austere figure uh, in uh, you know, in the Vatican, uh, penning this remarkable uh, document that that draws a link between Christ and and the Church, between the Spirit and the institution, which holds out this tremendous vision of hope. I mean, for most men, this would be an invitation to despair. 1943, Italy. Uh, you know, France, England, Germany, Spain, all of these countries are going up in smoke. And, and what is this man doing? He draws our attention. And at the beginning of that encyclical, Mystici Corporis, he explicitly adverts to that context, the horrible context, and he says the purpose of this encyclical, one of my great hopes, is that this encyclical can provide real solace, real encouragement, real hope. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it strikes this wonderfully Augustinian salvation. theme because Augustine, you know, writes the city of God uh, right. in, in, in the midst of a world that is literally falling apart, the yeah. collapse of empires. 
and he calmly sets down this overarching vision of God's city, God's order. And, and Pius is doing exactly the same thing in the midst of circumstances which would appear to be dire and bleak and, and irrecoverable. He transcends yes. that moment. That yeah, he, takes, he takes the temporal moment. that is falling right. apart and right. shows us to the eternal yeah. and the pillars that last regardless. That's right. Yeah. You know, my heart just leapt when you said Augustine because when you read Mystici Corporis mm -hmm. or anything else that he does, you recognize Augustine's big insight that the body of Christ is not just what Jesus had on yeah. earth. Yeah. It's not just what is raised and ascended and enthroned. It is the sacramental mystical organism of the church, what Augustine called the totus Christus, right. the whole Christ. Right. That's not only the, the, the insight of St. Augustine, it's the key to unlocking what Pius XII was doing right. in Mystici Corporis and Mediator Dei and everywhere else. I remember more than a quarter of a century ago, two or three years before I came into the church back in 86, I was reading John Paul, of course, who wasn't, you know, uh, at that point. But I just thought, these encyclicals, I mean, how come these aren't bestsellers, you know? And so I went back and I began to look for others, you know, and I found Pius XII. And I must admit, I had a preference for Pius because, you know, <laughs> the Slavic Pope, Blessed John Paul, could write in a very profound but concentric way, <laughs> whereas Pius XII wrote with such a linear precision and clarity. Yeah. You know, he was a Thomist. He, he, he certainly was schooled in the neo-scholastic rigor, you know, but he wasn't rigid. It was a pastoral way of theologizing, you know. So it was everything that he, that he wrote that I, that I read is like, He's drawn from the Old Testament and the New. He's citing the early fathers. He's an Augustinian. He's a Thomist. He's a Catholic. He's all of this, you know. Yeah, it's the right. Bible. It's the fathers. It's the East. It's the West. It's the patristic. It's the medieval. And it was so clear and profound. I thought if my denomination had ever published a single document like any one of these right. 40s, you know, yeah, yeah. we would have all been reading it, rereading it over and over again. You <laughs> That's know? profound. So we, we, we talked about the three main areas. We've talked a lot about the church and, and his biblical studies. What did Pius really bring? How did he breathe life uh, into biblical studies? Well, on the one hand, he reaffirmed everything that his predecessor had stated so authoritatively with regard to the inspiration, the inerrancy, the dual authorship, that, that Scripture, the word inspirated, is like the word incarnated. It's fully human and fully divine, you know, but without error. But many books might be devoid of error, but they're not inspired. You know, like Our Lady is devoid of sin, but that doesn't divinize her as such, you know. So it really is the truth of the Word incarnate that shapes our reading of the Word inspired. Mm. It was what one scholar calls a Trinitarian Christocentricity. What? Mm. It's Christ-centered. That when you read the Bible, you find Christ on every page. And if you don't, you got to go back and reread it, you know. But it's the plan of the Father in sending the Son to give us the Spirit to make us His family. I mean, that's what you find throughout all of Pius's writings. That's the vision that inspired his own pastoral ministry long before becoming Pope and then throughout all of the years of his papacy. But it's so significant that it wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just pastoral in some subjective interior sense. It was public. You know, I remember in 1951, I don't remember being, I wasn't <laughs> alive then, but in 1951, he took the fruit of these teachings about the, the, uh, the church, about the Bible, about the liturgy, and announced in November of 1951 that we are going to restore the Paschal mystery. Right. And in 1951, 
many people don't know this, that the Easter Vigil had not been celebrated for hundreds of years. And for five years, on a kind of trial basis, we're going to restore the Easter Vigil. And then afterwards, in 1955, he restored the entirety of Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday and the procession going through Holy Thursday and the foot washing. And then, you know, then we have the the, the Good Friday service, and then the Easter Vigil, and then the Easter Sunday. It was like it was in the early church. Rich scriptural, liturgical, ecclesial renewal. Again, before Vatican II. Mm. And, and he, he brought it all back from the, the, the storehouses of the church. Brought right. the beauty the, the, and, and brought it into the modern world. That's, That's right. right. So, there's, there's a continuity. That's right. Absolutely. So the, when the time came for Vatican II to really implement the, the, this, this liturgical renewal worldwide, it wasn't, again, a novum or a supernova. It was, yep. it was just the continuation of what Pius XII had been doing since the early 50s. I don't think many people realize that the, that the Easter Vigil wasn't celebrated or that even that, that he was, uh, he allowed more vernacular mass celebrations uh, right. than, than any other, I think, any other pope uh, up to that point. And so all these things, again, talking about how Vatican II wasn't this radical break. But since we only have a few minutes left in this yeah. segment, I wanted to get a little bit on the Sacred Heart. Um, you know, he had a profound encyclical written on the Sacred Heart. Uh, no. Why did he do this, and what does it really speak to? Okay, in 1958, he died, but in the last five years of his pontificate, he, he published 13 encyclicals. <laughs> Arguably the most important one came out in 1956, Hariatus Aquis, on devotion to the Sacred Heart. It's divided up into three parts. The first part is the theological foundation, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the patristic sources. I remember first reading that and my heart, my mind were ravished. I mean, it was just like, wow, the covenant of God's mercy, God's fatherhood, supernatural grace, you know, and just participating in Christ's divine sonship. The second part was this meditation on the sacred heart, how the humanity of Jesus is the instrument of divine love, and how the heart of Jesus is the center of his own humanity, and how the human heart of Jesus beats with this divine passion. Mm. And the third and final section is on how the devotion to the Sacred Heart is something that will really put us in touch with sanctifying grace, with you know, supernatural life, but with divine charity, and that it will you know, infuse life to the whole Christ. And I, it's one of those things where I had read it right after I'd been reading John Paul's Redemptor Hominis, his very first encyclical on the Redeemer of Man, and Divus and Misericordia, Rich in Mercy, and I thought, Man, this guy is stealing his lines. Yeah. You know, Pius XII is really the source for so much of what was inspiring John Paul II. How fitting it was for the both of them, one to be declared you know, blessed and the other one to be declared venerable on the same day. In that encyclical, he vindicates a movement in the church. Uh, you could argue approximately starting with Margaret Mary Alacoque of the 17th century, That's right. okay? Uh, and, there, and there was some dispute about this. Should it be a fee? Should it be a universal devotion? And you know how he vindicates it? He vindicates it by returning to the New Testament, to the Incarnation, yes. and to Ephesus's insistence at the, the Council of Ephesus that the humanity of Christ is the humanity of God the Son, the Logos. And therefore, we need to worship it with the worship that we owe to God, right. not because it's human, but because it's the humanity right. of the Logos. And the heart represents the center, that outpouring yes. of love so he brings it right to the, 
to the present age and makes it relevant as he does with scripture, as he does with uh, Well, he underscores the centrality of the heart as the most noble feature and expression of of the human person. The heart is a symbol of of Christ's uh, unending love, this limitless outpouring of love. It's a metaphor. It's it's not a simile. It's not like, but it is. is. Uh, and, And from those rivers, of living waters uh, that pour forth perpetually, you and I derive uh, salvation and, and consolation. From His heart we derive our salvation right. through infused love, yeah. that supernatural virtue. Right. So there's a threefold love He highlights. Of course, Jesus possesses the love that is shared by the Father and the Holy Spirit. He also possesses a truly human love for His mother and for everybody else. But there is a supernaturally infused theological virtue in the heart of Jesus. And then the whole Christ, the church, Mm. participates in this caritas, in this divine love. And you realize His humanity was no puppet. It was really the instrument of His divinity, but it was fully assumed. He was truly and fully human, one with us in all things except sin. Right. And thus infusing his love. What, what that means is we don't get that love. We don't get that supernatural life in us except through that sacred heart. That's right. That's right. the privileged right. and sole instrument. That's the conduit. Without that, we don't, we don't receive that love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been discussing Pius Twelfth and his hidden legacy. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, stay with us as we talk about how we are to retrieve and then the benefits of retrieving some of the wisdoms of Pius Twelfth. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester, I had sacraments with Dr. Hahn. And uh, I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. Every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. Thank you for tuning in to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, This entire program springs forth from the heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, This program is being taped here in the Communication Arts Studios. Uh, Our cameras and the equipment are being managed and and run by our students. Uh, Our panelists, uh, and actually today our guests as well, are faculty uh, from Franciscan University. So Scott, we've been talking about the hidden legacy of, uh, of, of Pope Pius XII. Uh, there are some things we missed that we just didn't get time to get to. Uh, there's one or two things we were talking about that you'd like to, to discuss. Uh, you know, one with uh, the Pope's impact on a particular uh, individual, and then even going to the assumption before we talk about uh, a little bit more on Pius. So. Sure. Well, let me just back up and say this: that you know, if we were in a crowded room and suddenly Shaquille O'Neal were to walk in. Nobody would wonder whether or not there was a giant standing in our midst because of his physical stature. The fact is, men who are giants in the spiritual realm don't stand out the same way Shaquille O'Neal does. 
That's why Pius XII is emerging in my own study as a hero right alongside of John Paul, mm. one of my all-time favorite human beings. And when you see the impact that he had, not only on the church at large, but on individuals particularly, I'm thinking of the chief rabbi of the synagogue of Rome, which at the time, and I'm speaking of the 40s, was sort of like the headquarters. It was the center because, of course, you know, the Jews had not returned to Palestine as their homeland until 48. And so in the 40s, uh, this man named Israel, or Emil Zoli, was working closely with Pius XII to harbor Jews in the Vatican and to get them through monasteries and convents to safety. And in the context of that collaboration, their friendship was deepened, their conversations would go on to the late hours until finally, at the end of the war in 1945, the chief rabbi of the synagogue of Rome shocked the world by announcing that he would receive baptism yeah. and that he would enter the Catholic Church wow. Easter of 1945. And he took as his baptismal name Eugenio, mm. which was Pacelli's surname, right. you know, yeah. Eugenio Pacelli. Their friendship was forged in those hard years, and yet it produced this supernatural fruit. One year later, his wife and his daughter were, were received in the church, and then Pius XII oversaw an appointment for this great rabbi and biblical scholar at the Biblicum. He became a, a scholar who taught scripture, uh, taught Hebrew, uh, I, you know, to uh, Sophia Cavaletti, he had, uh, she had him as a tutor, yeah. and she told me what it was like to have uh, Zoli as a, a, a mentor and a tutor. Uh, it, it, it's that sort of thing, and, and that became well known, although it can't be discussed uh, so widely because of, you know, the ecumenical sensitivities. But perhaps what can be discussed and will be discussed for centuries to come is what Pius XII did in this document, Munificentissimus Deus, mm -hmm. where he defined the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, that Mary was assumed into heaven, body and soul, to enter into the glory of her Son and Redeemer, Jesus, and, and there to become sort of the archetype of the church, that the church is destined to kind of catch up to Our Lady right, and right. share in her glory, but she is the one through whom the glory and the grace of Christ stream into the life of the church. It's a profound, beautiful thing, and, and, and I can't quote it exactly, but he had this beautiful uh, phrase where he said that the whole church was essentially vibrating and saying it's coming forth to declare the assumption of, That's right. of Our Lady. Yeah, he had a calling. very deep Marian uh, devotion, and he was, yeah. he was ordained a bishop on the anniversary of the Fatima on uh, May 13th. Uh, he also had uh, celebrated 1954 as the 100th anniversary of the definition of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, he wrote an encyclical on the queenship of Mary, sort of preparing the way for what may be defined at some point in the future about Mary's role as mediatrix, co-redemptrix, advocate, and all the things she does as our queen mother. Yeah. You know, there's a rich legacy. But le leading up to the Assumption <coughs> encyclical, uh, he, he requested from bishops throughout the world their opinion on the uh, timeliness of, of, the, of the declaration. And uh, some, something toward eight, uh, upwards of eight million responses from ecclesiastics throughout the Catholic world responded to him, and that was the vibration yeah. he was talking about. Is right. that this yes. response right. is, makes it clear that the church is ready, resonating yeah. with this, dog, this doctrine, which is now going to be And so if we, if we go now from, from a man who was a giant in a, in a, a very historic <laughs> yes. time, you know, 
it is wonderful to think about him as a historical figure of the past. What are some of the legacies that we draw from today? How do we bring some of this, this legacy and how does it impact our life, whether it's biblical, liturgical, or, or, or the understanding of the church, or whatever it might be? How do we draw from well, that? Well, one thing we need to do is to circulate more widely this program because <laughs> Scott has clearly done his homework, a massive amount of research, which I, I think may well have dispensed us from having to participate at all. We could have had a long coffee break <laughs> uh, so I, I think he's no longer a hidden figure. Yeah. He is a giant, titanic, but it is true in an unobtrusive way. He was very modest right. uh, and, and uh, uh, sort of uh, reticent. He didn't strut his own stuff. He didn't really have the sense of drama and theater that uh, Carol Vatiwa had. I mean, he, he was immersed in the theater, but, but Pius, I, I think, was, was, was a more retiring figure, more scholarly, more aloof. And, and that's why when you recount that, that conversion and baptism of, of the Jewish rabbi in Rome, uh, you would think that that would make a huge international splash. Yeah. That's an extraordinarily dramatic event. It, it dwarfs, I, I think, what either John did when he sort of waved hesitantly outside the synagogue of Rome to the Jews as they went into worship, or even uh, John Paul II, who actually entered into the synagogue, the first pope to cross the Tiber uh, to uh, somehow break, not break bread, but to announce his solidarity and say, we are your younger brothers. I mean, that was remarkable. But what Pius accomplished, I, I think, is an extraordinary thing. Yeah. I mean, to effect, to catalyze the conversion of this man mm. and not to capitalize on it. I mean, he didn't, he didn't make a big thing about it. He could have. He could have brought in media to exploit this event. This was huge. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're right. A heroic virtue includes humility. And, and that was really what made him a behind-the-scenes man, not just in terms of international diplomacy, but in terms of the hiddenness of his deepest virtues and holiness. And people who were the closest to him recognized this. And what a key figure to have at this point, this critical juncture in church history, because there were a lot of renewal movements that were fomenting. And some of them were extreme. Liturgical renewal was already in the works back in the 20s and 30s, but at places like Maria Locke and other places, it's like, whoa, don't go off the rails, you know. And so when he does what he did in Mediator Day in 1947, he, he, with restraint, he took what was the very best and the deepest and harnessed that for the whole church. Mm. The same thing was true for biblical scholarship. There was a biblical renewal that was already fomenting in the 30s and the 40s, so that by 43, with the help of his confessor, uh, the Jesuit biblical scholar Augustine, later Cardinal Bea, he wrote Divino, and I mean really, took the very best of the biblical renewal, but said, whoa, don't get carried away with historical criticism. Employ it, but recognize the limitations and use it in terms of the church's faith. And the same thing with the vision of the church. The mystical body was something of a theological fad within Neil Mersch and other people. He's like, okay, good point, but let's just take that. And in Mystici Corporis, he draws out the very best, avoid some of the excesses, you know, and you mentioned we were talking about Sacred Heart. Yeah. You know, that devotion was being disparaged by some theologians in the 50s on the one side and taken to excess in a kind of pietistic frenzy by some, a, a few on the other. And so when he wrote Hariatus Aquas on the devotion to the Sacred Heart, again, it's like, wow, what, I mean, the scholars would have been really impressed. And the devotees who were really close to the Sacred Heart devotion would have been like, you can't do better, you know? Yeah, and this was the gift of a man mm. who was holy and prayerful. But again, 
He was a scholar, but he knew how to harness that, not to impress fellow academics, yeah. but to how to take the heart and the mind of the church and deepen mm. it. Well, Pius XII exemplifies what Benedict XVI calls the, the approach to Vatican II, the hermeneutic, the interpretation of Vatican II as reform, yes. some, some good elements from what's contemporary, in continuity. That's right. So yeah. Pius, especially in these three encyclicals that prepared the way for the three constant dogmatic constitutions of Vatican II, precisely does just that. He takes good developments in the contemporary milieu, in biblical studies, in liturgy, and in theology of the church, but he they're, but they're rooted in divine revelation and in the tradition of the church in continuity. And I think that's so he, he's the model. It is. It if, we're, if Vatican II is after reform in continuity with, with the deposit of faith, right. Pius XII exemplifies right. that. Right. Yeah. The, the church has that's really been blessed, right I, I yeah. think, uh, in the last century with some pretty towering figures, uh, leaders, saints, scholars, mystics even. I mean, pious uh, John Paul II, uh, the current Pope Benedict, John XXIII, even, even Benedict XV who tried to stop that cataclysmic great war. I mean, men of courage and outstanding holiness. I mean, when, when you compare that to the institutions, say, of the American presidency, I mean, it, it, it's, we're pretty pathetic uh, alongside that, that record. You know, sometimes we get the leaders we want, other times we get the leaders we need. <laughs> yeah. you know, and in periods of prosperity, we often want the wrong things. Yeah. And in periods of, of, of dire need, yeah. we get the right things, yeah. the mercy of God. And, you know, I would say we didn't get a leader that we deserved in Pius XII. We got a leader that Christ himself merited for us and mm, for his yeah, church yeah. as his vicar. And you know, as such, we look at this man and realize what a key he is. You know, Pope Benedict called him the interpretive key to reading the documents of Vatican II. But I mean, not just 16 documents that came out in the early 60s, but everything that has come afterwards, because so much of the debate as to what the, you know, the Second Vatican Council represents can be resolved rather quickly and easily by recognizing that continuity. That's right. yeah. Authentic reform, to be sure, but deep and profound continuity, just as sure. And that seems like the, one of the key um, legacies for us today is that continuity, that right. understanding that, that both from the, the fathers, from the scripture, all the way through, but there's always a need, you know, a need for reform, looking back and really drawing from our first sources and drawing back to that, both with scripture, liturgy, the understanding of the church, even these true, uh, great and wonderful Marian and Sacred Heart devotions, looking at it both from a, a scriptural and the life of the church, seeing it in its fuller context. Is that you what know, you would think is some of the legacy? Some th definitely. Those are non-theologians that looking at this topic. Saying, I, you know, I think the reason why Pius XII holds the key, the interpretive key to, to Vatican II, in terms of continuity and authentic reform is because he was a man of continuity himself. Yeah. When you study his documents and when you read about people who lived alongside of him, you realized that as a scholar, he took from the Old Testament. In Hariotis Aquis, I was blown away by how much of the law and the prophets he drew from, how well he knew it. And then the new, how you move from servanthood to sonship. And then from the fathers, both Eastern and Western, especially Augustine, but not just the patristic, but the medieval. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a Thomist, but not some kind of rigid Thomist. He was what I call a Thomistic, and spell it with a Y, because like Thomas, he was a mystic. Mm -hmm. And so that scholastic renewal that Leo XIII had pioneered back in the 1870s and 80s was sort of the foundation on which you can build a sure edifice. Pius XII himself embodied the continuity from the old to the new, from the patristic to the medieval to the modern and beyond. 
That's why discovering his work is going to be, you know, just a, it's a treasure trove yeah. that is really waiting to be appreciated. Oh, that's well, so great. He, he had a sense of himself as Pope. He knew who he was uh, in his institutional expression. There was no Hamlet syndrome, uh, which unfortunately attached itself to the psychology of Paul. But this guy knew he was magisterial, a, a self-possession, a certitude that was almost apodictic. When he spoke, you knew it was God's word yes. that he uttered. And in fact, the anecdote is that whenever he called you on the phone, you would instinctu instinctively fall to your knees because uh -huh. this is the vicar of Christ yeah. speaking. It wasn't a casual kind of call. This is official business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's profound. Uh, you'll want to stay with us on Franciscan University Presents as we, we sum up and talk about some of the highlights of Pius XII. Stay with us. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere. It's completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors have the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Thanks for tuning in to Franciscan University Presents, where we've been discussing with Dr. Scott Hahn the legacy, the hidden legacy of Pope Pius uh, XII. Um, this is our time where we wrap up our, our highlights. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, a couple of uh, scattered uh, impressions, one of which is gratitude uh, for Scott. I'm no end of grateful uh, to you for uh, uh, this exhaustive research uh, you have done. Uh, I, I, I now begin to understand the image of the fire hydrant that people uh, associate you with. Uh, uh, it's, it's a gift, uh, and I, I think we have all stood uh, in awe of its, uh, its display. Uh, this performance, uh, I, I think, is really uh, impressive, uh, an impressive show of erudition and passion, uh, which I think makes it particularly uh, endearing. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, this other impression of a group of Augustinian scholars who went to Rome and they had a private audience with the then Holy Father, Pope Paul, and when he inquired, why have you come, and they said, to study Augustine, he asked, how does one study the ocean? Where does one begin? And this is the first time it occurs to me that maybe pious is an ocean, a vast deep blue sea of limpid, uh, endless waters, and, and the answer is, you plunge in anywhere because the themes are symptomatic everywhere, uh, and it doesn't matter. He's got 40 encyclicals. I had no idea, and you've read them all and probably committed most to memory, but it's <laughs> a vast inventory, a huge storehouse, and uh, anyone in particular, I, I think, is revelatory of, of, of this man, uh, his, his stature as Vicar of Christ. I, I'm, I'm sort of uniquely situated because I'm a lot older than any of you, and so I lived during the reign of, of Pius. In fact, he was on the throne of St. Peter less than 10 years when I was born, uh, and so I lived under the shadow of this man. But I must confess, like most Catholics, I was utterly unaware of him because he was aloof and remote. 
he was so busy writing, probably. <laughs> he didn't have time to chat with people. He didn't do press conferences. He never came to Pittsburgh. Uh, and so his style was very different from that of John Paul II. But I must say uh, in gratitude that all of the contours of my life, the shaping influences that went into sort of the formation of my faith and sensibility, I owe to the Counter-Reformation Church, the Tridentine Church, and he was the last triumphant expression of that age. He was, he was uh, full of confidence, a robust confidence in who he was and what he did. You never, you never doubted for a moment. This man believes. Uh, he's, taken, he's taken serene uh, and, and convincing possession of his office, the papacy, and he's going to discharge it by George. Wow. And nobody's going to tell him otherwise. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. That is great. Mike? Well, thanks for having me as a guest panelist. I always appreciate when you're in the hot seat, and it's, <laughs> it's really a joy. I'd like to just sit here and listen for a long time. Um, I'm very grateful for your hard work, Scott. This has been a blessing. Uh, I recall growing up, uh, and my parents, and then my extended family, my older relatives, would talk very fondly about Pius XII. They, they, he was a very beloved, though of course certainly aloof, physically distant, yeah, wasn't a traveling pope. But, but I recall anecdotes from growing up asking my parents about who was Pope when you were a kid, and they had a great love for this, for this yeah. man. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. There are two things in particular I'd like to, to focus on in a wrap-up statement. One is, there's another legend, talking about legends, uh, and that is that uh, Pius XII in his encyclical Divino Flante Spiritu on Scripture uh, opened the door to historical critical methods, which he certainly did in a cautious way, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, no doubt. But the legend is he opened it up in an unrestricted way and moved the church beyond in a rupturous fashion what proceeded with respect to the doctrines of in inerrancy, uh, plenary inspiration, and full inerrancy of Scripture, which is rooted in a proper understanding of the divine authorship of Scripture through the human author as well. But that's a false reading of Pius XII. He certainly uh, promoted in Divina Flanto, the use of uh, Flanto, the, the use of critical methods, but a lot of these critical methods were already in a prototypical fashion used as early as Jerome right. under Pope Damasus to get a tight, clean copy of the Hebrew text from which you could translate the Vulgate. All right, so Pius uh, the Twelfth is in frankly radical continuity. Um, he he can't be so so for some he's. Uh, in Divino Flante, rupturing from tradition. In other, for others, he is uh, a stoic, stodgy, crustified, you know, representative of tradition. But in fact, he's neither. And one last point I'd like to make is from Mystici Corpus, his, his encyclical on the church. On the one hand, he very clearly, and this is, I think, perhaps the heart of the hope he holds out to the world in that context with respect to the church. And it's this, that the church is the means that the Lord shows. Uh, to save the world. His chosen instrument is his sacred humanity, which is extended by incorporation in the mystical body, yes? So membership in the church is central to the salvation of the world. And, this is, and then in the same encyclical, a few paragraphs later, he describes in the most beautiful terms, I've, I don't know if I've heard more beautiful terms, the, the, the goal to which all of humanity is called in Christ, which is to have the beatific vision, which he describes as, as assisting at the procession of the persons in the Trinity, like assisting at Mass. Mm. You witness and join your rejoicing to the events, 
he describes the beatific vision as assisting at the procession of yeah. persons. Mm, wow, wow. We, we, will, we will see this procession, cool. eternal procession of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Beautiful. So, so solid, orthodox, respecting the modern context, relevant for salvation for the people of the world today, but also tremendously beautiful. beautiful. Oh, thank you, Mike. And Scott. Well, the first thing we have to do is to bury the corpse of the black legend. And David Dallin's book, The Myth of Hitler's Pope, does a good job. Ronald Richlap's book, Righteous Gentiles, does also. But let's move beyond that. I think the legacy of Pius XII is what all of us bask in during Holy Week, mm. with the restoration of the Palm Sunday procession, with Holy Thursday, with Good Friday, with the Easter Vigil, and then the Easter Sunday. Year after year after year, this authentic liturgical reform and renewal is what he leaves us as a legacy. And it shows us that we don't have to be radical traditionalists or radical reformers. We have to be radically obedient to Christ and to his vicar. And in the process, we will be transformed, God willing, to become saints like Pius XII. I would also say this, go back and read his works. Mm. I was on the phone yesterday with a good friend of mine, uh, Brant Petrie, who teaches at seminary down in Louisiana. And I was telling him about this show and the topic. He's like, I can't believe it. We just read Sacra Virginitas. All my seminarians came to me and said, Dr. Petrie, we should have read this the first day we came into seminary. Never does consecrated virginity make so much sense. What an exciting vision. And I said, Brant, that's true for practically everything he wrote. You know, we've got to go back and retrieve this and really discover what graces are still alive for us. Wow, that is, that is powerful. Well, uh, echoing others, I want to thank you. I was, I was suspicious uh, how much I, I, we could talk about with Pius XII. I had no idea the depth uh, of the impact that he had. So, so thank you for both bringing the topic up, but also just... We're still scratching yeah, the surface. Yeah. Well, you, you, you've given enough to give passion. I think yeah. you've given enough interest to say to, to a lot of people, myself included. Um, so uh, for me, I, I would look at it and say, um, this is a, the year of faith. Um, what are you doing in this year of faith uh, to, to deepen your love and your knowledge and your practice of the faith. Um, a great way to do this is a, uh, a handout here that we have for you uh, on the Sacred Heart from the, the encyclical of Pope Pius on the Sacred Heart. You can download this, uh, these excerpts that we've pulled uh, at faithandreason.com or just asking us. This is a great way to, to start in, I mean, to really hear some beautiful, beautiful text uh, that really goes to the heart of our faith. Uh, looking at both the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart, looking at Mary, uh, what in your family devotion have you done uh, to deepen your love, uh, becoming more one, lending your heart, as Mother Teresa said, lend your heart for mine uh, with, with Our Lady. So as, as we look at this, there's so much with Pius that we've only begun to scratch the surface. Uh, we need to go deeper. Uh, but that's all the time we have for today. Um, we invite you to be a part of the mission of Franciscan University uh, by going online to faithandreason.com where um, all of these uh, gentlemen and others are on there for, for, for additional teaching, inspiration, uh, to come and visit us on, uh, on campus here, whether getting your degree uh, or through our distance learning, uh, joining us at one of the summer conferences. Uh, whatever you do, deepen your faith this year and use Pius XII as much as you are able. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents 
or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.